Where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? Get with the times. When someone tells you, get with the times, you may feel slight embarrassment. Maybe you still call with a candlestick telephone, produce reports on a typewriter, save your homework in a 3.5-inch floppy disk. FYI, I think I've used all of these before. Um, You may look a little bit backwards, but hey, who cares? You're not hurting anyone. You do you. But at other times, there are serious consequences if you don't get with the times. During World War II, Hiru Onoda, a low-ranking Japanese soldier, received direct orders to lead a garrison in the Philippines in guerrilla warfare. Onoda recounts in his memoir the pep talk from his superior, quote, you are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts, If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. End quote. Anoda, loyal to his country and emperor, took this charge seriously and literally. A few months later, the imperial Japanese forces surrendered. Thousands of soldiers were scattered across South Pacific and Asia. Many were captured. Others died of suicide, starvation, and sickness. And then there's Anoda. As the Allied forces took Lubang Island, Anoda led his forces into the jungle. They read the news of Japan's surrender, but they believed it was enemy propaganda, that it was trickery. So they continued their mission. They really did eat coconuts and stole livestock from the locals for meat. They evaded search parties and killed 30 people. Anoda's group dwindled down to one as his men died or surrendered. Fast forward about 30 years later. It's now 1974. Someone locates Anoda in the Philippines and tries to convince him that the war's over and he should return home. But he won't budge. He's not going anywhere. He believes he's still under orders. Finally, the Japanese government sent Anoda's former commanding officer to officially relieve him of his duty. I really got to know how Onoda felt that moment he was relieved. Did he feel relieved? Or did he feel foolish? Remorse for the three decades he wasted? Get with the times, Onoda. The war is over. Onoda's story may sound ridiculous to us, But would you believe some followers of Jesus make a similar mistake? They spend a large chunk of their lives deceived and deceiving themselves, living backwards and trying to live under bondage. 
They strive for a lost cause instead of accepting the reality. You can imagine the frustration of Paul who finds the Galatians acting like Anoda. They should know better. The age of the law is past. The age of Christ and the Spirit is here. As new creations in Christ, we need to know what time it is. So let's see how Paul says, get with the times, Galatians, before God tells us. Get with the times, Christians. So turn with me to Galatians 4, 1 to 11. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 812. Galatians 4, 1 to 11, page 812. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. The passage divides neatly into two parts, verses 1 to 7 and verses 8 to 11. And it's helpful to look at the last verse of each section. Verses 7 and 11 well, tell us where Paul's going with this argument as the preceding material builds up to the conclusions. Conclusion one, you're no longer a slave but a son, but if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We'll see how verses one to six leads up to this principle. Conclusion number two, Paul's afraid for the Galatians, lest he has labored for them in vain. Verses 8 to 10 explain why Paul's anxious for these churches. So based on that twofold structure, I'll state positively how we can get with the times. Get up to speed with God's will for you. One, enjoy your sonship status as an heir of God. Enjoy your sonship status as an heir of God. That's verses 1 to 7. Two, live freely in the intimate knowledge of God. Live freely in the intimate knowledge of God. That's verses 8 to 11.
First, enjoy your sonship status as an heir of God. I want to start by making two connections. One, tie chapter 4 to chapter 3, and two, loop together verse 1 and verse 7 of chapter 4. Connection number one, in verse one, note how Paul begins with the words, now I say, which can be taken as, here's what I mean. Paul's developing the ideas of the previous chapter, previous passage, staying on this topic of sonship. It's a key idea of the gospel. Through faith in Christ, we are sons of Abraham and sons of God. And with such status comes the promise of inheritance. Connection number two, verse one and seven also frame the first section of chapter four as sort of bookends. In verse one, Paul again uses an illustration of a young heir waiting for full adulthood. It's common enough in the Roman world for Gentiles to understand But by the time we get to verse 7, we move beyond the ordinary to extraordinary. We go from a son in a Roman household to sons of God in the household of faith. We start from the heir of a perishable estate and end with heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So let's see how Paul gets us from verse 1 to verse 7, point A to point B earthly heirs to heavenly heirs. The underage heir of the family is trapped in a paradox. By birthright, he's destined to rule. In a sense, he's already the master overall, but as a child, he cannot exercise any of that authority. He's no better than a slave, and under the supervision and power of adults, Guardians and stewards in verse 2 are similar to tutor we saw back in chapter 3. It's likely that the guardians directly care for the son, while the stewards look after his future possessions and property. At a date which the father decides, all of the resources and responsibilities are passed on to the son. Now there's a lot of background information we could explore here. But Paul doesn't get long-winded. He doesn't press the analogy further. A simple explanation will suffice. So in verse 3, he goes on to say, even so we. His former life before meeting Jesus was much like a child preparing for adulthood. And like an underage child without rights, Paul was a slave under the law of Moses. Paul already introduced the idea of bondage in chapter 3, verse 22 to 23. What's new here is how he equates the law as the elements of the world. Now, what does that mean, elements of the world? That word elements can refer to building blocks that make up the material universe. That's how Peter understands it in 2 Peter 3, 10, and 12. Ancient philosophers focused on four elements, fire, water, air, and earth. Today, we have a whole periodic table of elements. But elements can also mean basic and fundamental ideas and concepts. 
Think of the alphabet for the writer, numbers for the mathematician, the notes for the musician. In the realm of theology, the writer of Hebrews discusses the first principles of the oracles of God, and it's like milk for babies who are not ready for meat, and that's in Hebrews 5.12. So, so those under the law are like children stuck in elementary school, unable to pass and advance. They cannot graduate beyond the law because they keep failing. They could not see how the letters spelled out God. The numbers added up to Christ. And the notes played a tune of the gospel. And the one without the law is stuck too. Gentiles saw the general revelation of God in nature, and the Jews have seen the special revelation of God in scripture. But they both missed the signs. So apart from the work of Christ, saving work of Christ, all are under bondage to the elements of the world. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Because everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. But thankfully, the story of redemption continues. The fullness of the time in verse 4 corresponds to the time appointed by the Father in verse 2. The time of salvation and grace, prophesied, indicated, and testified beforehand, finally arrived. God made a way for our inheritance to bring us into heavenly maturity. God acts in Trinity. Here's what he did the Father sends forth twice that verb, once in verse 4 and the other in verse 6. God didn't send us material gifts or some angelic being, God gave us Himself. The Father sent his Son, and then the Father sent the Holy Spirit. First, the Father sent forth his Son. There are two descriptions attached. First, the Son of God was born of a woman. Paul's teaching on the incarnation of Christ concerning his humanity. But Jesus was different than us in that he was born only from a woman. He originates from virgin birth. We read from Matthew and Luke that Mary, before she came together with Joseph in marriage, was bound with child of the Holy Spirit. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14. God's son as David's son is Emmanuel, God with us. But the description born of a woman may also be alluding to an older prophecy all the way back in Genesis 3. In the midst of the fall, humanity's curse, God promises that the woman's seed will defeat the serpent. For that very reason, God's son came to us as human. The son of God was manifested in flesh to destroy the works of the devil. The serpent bruised him first, but through death, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. Now it's Christ's turn. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Next, Jesus, born of a woman, was also born under the law. 
the one counted worthy of more glory than Moses, humbled himself and obeyed Moses. Accordingly, he entered into that covenant through circumcision. Again, you can see these things in the early chapters of Matthew and Luke. He was presented holy as the firstborn of the family at the temple. Unlike other Jews, Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He fulfilled the law and deserved all the blessings of obedience. Now, Jesus went under the law to get us out from under the law. Now, can you recall the last time we saw the word redeem in verse 5? And you turn back to chapter 3, verse 13. We read there, Christ has redeemed, the same exact word, us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. At the cross, Jesus paid a steep price required to save us. The wages of sin is death, and we must pay with our lives in hell. But then we were bought at a price. We were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. After purchasing us with his life, Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. And by placing our faith in God's Son, we are welcomed into God's home as adopted sons. Here again, Paul's drawing from the Roman customs. Emperors adopted unrelated men as sons to succeed them in the future. Similarly, do Christ's kind act. The Father leads us out from under slavery to adoptive sonship. It's not time or effort that makes us heirs. What we need to do is repent from our sins. Make sure we have a genuine trust in Christ. It is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that grants us our sonship status. So the gospel teaches us how to obtain that sonship status. But you may ask, how do we enjoy our sonship status? And that's where the spirit comes in. In verse 6, we have the second sending forth. God sent forth the Holy Spirit. One commentator sums up the spirit's mission here as follows, quote, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. So how does this work exactly? The spirit allows us to experience our sonship by lending us his voice. The verb crying out in verse 6 modifies the spirit, not our hearts. That's not readily apparent in our English translations, but we do see it in the original language. The spirit is the one crying out, Abba, Father. 
Now, with that in mind, keep your finger on this page and turn with me to Romans 8.15. Or listen carefully as I read it. Romans 8.15 says, Or you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, did you catch the difference? Why are you catching the difference? Check again. Galatians 3.6 says, The spirit of his son cries out, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 says, We cry out, Abba, Father. So which one is it? It's both. Paul goes on in Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's see if an illustration helps. It's one thing for my son Nathaniel to be my son. It's another thing for him to experience his sonship, to come to me and cry out for his papa or daddy. Let's say I'm sitting at home on the second floor, distracted or working on something, unable to hear my son call for me from downstairs. His voice may be too soft or indistinct. But let me tell you, if he truly seeks me, my wife, Ire, will make sure I hear. When my boy cries, Daddy, Papa, my wife will add to his voice and say, Daddy, your son needs you. Through Ire, Nathaniel is assured of his sonship status. My wife's voice combines with my son's voice and amplifies it for my hearing. In the same way, the Spirit gives us confidence to address the creator of the universe as Abba Father. The Spirit helps us in our weakness and in our feeble prayers, as Romans 8, 25 to 26 tells us. Through the Spirit of God's Son, we enjoy our sonship status as heirs of God. So, get with the times, Christian. The Father has already sent his Son for our redemption. He has already sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So what's with this identity crisis? Why act as if we're still children waiting for full adult privileges? Why serve the elements of the world when we're destined to inherit the earth? Don't live backwards. Don't live in bondage. Instead, live freely in the intimate knowledge of God. And that's the point of verses 8 to 11. As I cover these verses, I'm going to work backwards. So I start with verse 11. Paul says, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. And that's scary for apostles like Paul. It's the fear of parents who faithfully discipline their children, yet they turn away regardless. 
It's the dread of pastors who labor for years with no visible fruit. It's the frustration of missionaries who give up everything at home but see nothing in the field. Now in verse 10, we observe the symptoms of the Galatian problem. They observe days, months, seasons, and years. Now, you take that in isolation and you may ask, what's wrong with that, you ask? So what if someone wants to follow the Jewish calendar and celebrate the Jubilee? What's the big deal if one of us refuses to go out and spend money on Sundays? Or what's the matter if that Seventh-day Adventist neighbor stays home on Saturdays? When we deal with the practices of a particular religious group, we need to look beyond the surface. As a figure of speech, we need to look beyond the pretty walls and inspect under the clean floors. Look at the blueprint. Look at the foundation. What's the reason one rests on Saturdays or Sundays or some other day? So let's start with the easy one, the Seventh-day Adventism. They may not be a cult per se, but I do consider them heterodox. Heterodox means strange doctrine, while orthodox means sound doctrine. Seventh-day Adventists cannot be considered a historically Protestant branch. Despite some efforts to push for an evangelical Adventism in the 1950s, there are three major problems that characterize traditional Seventh-day Adventism. First, there's, of course, the observance of Sabbath as a requirement for Christian living. Secondly, they believe that Jesus moved into a heavenly sanctuary in 1844 to complete the second phase of his atonement. Thirdly, they submit to the prophetic authority of Ellen G. White. I won't get into all the details, but you see it's fairly easy to dismiss the Sabbath observance of Seventh-day Adventists. It turns out their Sabbatarianism is actually the least of their problems, just the tip of the iceberg. This is a ritualism devoid of biblical faith. Now, what about our evangelical friends who keep the Christian Sabbath on Sundays? We should ask them, is it a matter of personal conviction or universal dogma? If it's his or her personal conviction, I'll tolerate it, though I disagree. Romans 14.5 says, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. You know where I am. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, it's more problematic if they see the Christian Sabbath as a universal dogma that everyone should submit to. Then you must point them to the Bible. Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 to 17, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Sabbath observation is a sign of the old covenant. Sabbath keeping is a shadow of the past, not the substance of the present. The reality is here in Jesus. It's no longer required of believers. We need to get with the times. 
You see how if we're to live freely in the intimate knowledge of God, we need to know God's word. Now listen carefully. We are not only bound to the scriptures, we are liberated by the scriptures. So live freely by knowing the scriptures. Then you'll be free from legalism and ritualism that entice the Galatians. Under the guise of Old Testament language, the Judaizers sold a religious system that contradicts the gospel. Sure, resting on a holy day sounds nice, but look beyond the surface. Some things may look godly, but it turns out that they're godless. That's why we observe in verses 8 and 9 that the Jewish false doctrine of legalism is no better than the Gentile practice of idolatry. Ritualism is no better than hedonism. And that's shocking coming from a Pharisee like Paul. Now, do you remember King Saul in 1 Samuel 15? He was a ritualist. He tried to drown out the voice of the Lord with the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of oxen. The altar of God was a means to an end to build a monument for himself. Behind this ritualism was a stubbornness that amounts to iniquity and idolatry. In the end, King Saul of Israel was no better than King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They were both idolaters. Ritualism devoid of faith continued in Israelite history. The Lord later warned, Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. These people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but I've removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Ritualism devoid of faith continues and infiltrates the church today. We must stand our ground. We must fight to protect our liberty, protect and cherish our relationship with God. A relationship with God is what we need, and a relationship is only dynamic as the person's involved. The Galatians formerly had a dead relationship with dead idols. And here's what the Bible says about them in Psalm 115, 5 to 8. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. The Judaizers and those trying to obtain righteousness through the law are no, are no better than the heathens. They're trying to have a relationship with the picture, a sign, or a shadow. Sure, those things can be approximately close to reality, but they're not reality. I can't have a dynamic relationship with the photograph of Ere. 
Sure, the image is better than some crude stone carving, but the picture is still not my wife. I'm in a relationship with a three-dimensional person, flesh and blood, not something that points to her. The ritualists and legalists were doing something like that as they promoted works righteousness through the law. But in the gospel of Christ, we can live freely in the intimate knowledge of God. We know him, and he knows us. The Father, the Lord, is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Enjoy the freedom of sonship through Jesus Christ. Through Christ and with the Spirit, call out Abba Father this week. I'm accustomed to calling God by Lord. But if you're not accustomed to calling him by Father, right? And I'm trying to make this a practice. Call him Abba Father. There's power behind that because it's the truth of the gospel. As you think about these truths, sing in your hearts these words as we close. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. All the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but do Christ in me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we know that life before your son, before the gospel, before the Holy Spirit, before this relationship with you was frustration, was a dead end. Whether we grew up in moralistic families or a godless family, Lord, we could not be saved through our own efforts. We thank you that you saved us by revealing your son to us through the gospel and that we've turned away from our sins and our past and turned to you. Lord, we know that sometimes the past haunts us. There are others who want us to be reminded, not only reminded, but be dragged back into it. To think that we can be good enough for heaven when your son has done everything. There is no more for the heaven now to give. We thank you, and we pray that we would be enjoying this, Lord, that as we go to your word, as we go in prayer, as we sing your praises, that we know who we are, we know what time it is, we know that what's ahead of us is all according to the promises you've given us. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.